Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon for those of you who are joining us from Europe. Uh, welcome to this Migration Policy Institute Europe webinar, Turning the Tide, Addressing the Long-Term Challenges of EU Mobility for Sending Countries. Uh, I'm Megan Benton. I'm the Research Director for MPI Europe and also for the International Program uh, here at MPI in DC. Um, I'm very pleased um, that we're today showcasing um, some research from a, a project that we were very um, happy to be uh, involved in. Um, it's called the Reminder Project, which stands for Role of European Mobility and Its Impacts, Narratives, Debates, and EU Reforms. Um, it's a big project on free movement, on public opinion, on its fiscal impact that's coming to a close this year. Um, and please uh, keep an eye out for some really promising research that's coming out of that. Um, uh, I'm very pleased to also have a very uh, a nice mix of speakers on the call today. Uh, Liam Patuzzi, um, one of our own, he's a policy analyst uh, for MPI Europe. Um, Bernard Pechenink, he is a senior research officer at ICMPD. And then Martin Vyatrov, who is the chief expert for labor migration policy uh, at the Ministry of Family, uh, Labor and Social Policy um, in Poland. Um, I have some housekeeping notes to kick off. Um, the audio from today's webinar will be on our website later today. That is migrationpolicy.org forward slash events. Uh, for any technical problems you have um, today joining or hearing the audio, please email events at migrationpolicy.org and Lisa is standing by to answer all technical questions. Uh, if you have problems hearing via the web, our recommendation is dialing in using the call-in information you should have received earlier via email. And then just a note about the Q&A. Um, we run written, not voice, Q&As. That means that you can put in a question as it occurs to you in the chat box that you should see on your screens. You can also email events at migrationpolicy.org, or you can tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or even hashtag MPI discuss. So lots of options. Um, I'm just going to start off with a few uh, quick comments about today's discussion. Um, freedom of movement in the EU has been described as the world's biggest laboratory on open borders. So it provides really a, a unique opportunity to detest uh, some of um, our, our biggest questions when it comes to the impact of immigration on economies, on the labor market, on public services, on public trust and anxieties. Uh, as, as you all know, it's attracted quite a lot of controversies over the years, from Brits worrying that large numbers of Eastern Europeans arriving in the late 2000s would compete with native workers and drive down labor standards, to local authorities across Western Europe complaining about the challenge of responding to unpredictable fluctuations in service user numbers. And then perhaps the, the one that's received the most press coverage is anxieties about how extended, extending access to public benefits to newly arrived mobile EU nationals could create a welfare magnet. It could encourage people to move solely in order to take advantage of benefits uh, systems. But many of these anxieties, especially the ones that have received the most press, have really been focused on destination countries, on Western Europe. Rather less attention has been paid to the issue of emigration and the effects in particular of large numbers of especially often young people uh, leaving Eastern Europe to go west. So we know that emigration can bring huge benefits for origin countries. For instance, at times of high employment, it means that people can seek opportunities elsewhere, people can acquire valuable skills uh, that they can then you know, de deploy if and when they use 
when they return home. And it can channel funds to deprived regions, of course, in the form of, of, of remittances. So migration globally has been a really powerful development tool, but it also, of course, brings certain challenges, um, such as sometimes immediate labor shortages, especially in vital areas such as health. It also means that origin countries essentially foot the bill for training people who then you know, use their skills, practice abroad. But most of the robust evidence on whether on balance it's beneficial, um, as well as on the strategies that governments can use for engaging their diaspora, comes from the developing world as free movement is uh, a little bit newer. Um, so I said that it was somewhat of a laboratory. So I think the question we want to ask today is, 10, 15 years on from the biggest rounds of enlargement to the east, what have we learned from this experiment? I think there's um, at least three reasons why it's quite difficult to know the answer to that that I'd love to um, pick up in our discussion today. The first that it's, it's often hard to disaggregate broader trends, economic, social, demographic, from the impact of out-migration. So the period in question from the late 2000s, mid to late 2000s, um, when we saw the biggest flows, was also you know, a time of economic turmoil. We had the global financial crisis and recessions and then austerity policies in, in, in much of Europe. Um, and of course, it was also a time when the main movements changed and were sort of redirected. We, we saw increased south to north migration during this time. Um, a lot of countries uh, such as Spain and Greece were speaking about a lost generation of youth themselves um, who either faced limited opportunities or were moving elsewhere. Uh, a second uh, complicating factor that I'd love to discuss today is that evidence on a broad macro level often obscures the kind of regional dynamics um, and disadvantages that might be faced by specific groups as well as, of course, the real-life experience for families and communities. So we know that in-migration has distributional effects. That means that what looks like it's the case in the aggregate might not be reflected on the local level. Some groups may, for instance, um, face certain disadvantages in the labor market, even when there's a broad fiscal benefit. Um, and I think the same thing applies for, uh, for emigration, for out-mobility. And then, of course, you know, the economic picture is not always the most important one. We've seen a big reaction to experts, to economists who, who look at things in, in the aggregate and don't necessarily understand the sort of felt experience um, on the ground, um, which is why I'm really pleased that Bernard today is going to be talking a little bit about evidence that we have on the social side, on the sort of generational dynamics, uh, including um, on, on, on carers and care relationships. And then my final point, I think many of the costs and benefits um, of emigration, of out-mobility, only emerge over a kind of medium to long-term time frame. So we might focus on immediate shortages. Uh, on wages, on unemployment, these are the easiest things to measure, but actually it might mask broader, medium-term structural effects on the sort of demographic makeup of the population, on generational dynamics, on uh, skills and training systems, and whether they're kind of uh, upskilling the population for the jobs of the future. These things might only emerge over decades. Uh, and equally, many of the best strategies that governments have might be medium and long-term from diaspora engagement uh, to broader economic development and education policy and regional policy. 
So I think <laughs> it's quite clear that free movement is often um, in the eye of the beholder. So some think it's working really well, some think that we have too little mobility, some too much. Um, and really, where you stand, where, you're, where you live, where your perspective is, really makes a difference to um, that kind of evaluation of success. Um, so uh, I'm going to uh, turn now, uh, first off, to Liam, um, who's going to provide some um, overall framing, well, some more framing comments um, on this question from a slightly more thoughtful <laughs> perspective. Um, Liam is a, he's a, a policy analyst at NPI Europe, as I said. He focuses really on labor market integration, on free movement, um, on innovation. Um, and uh, yeah, over to you, Liam. Thank you, thank you so much, Megan, uh, for this for this great framing. Um, yes, yeah, so what I'm going to do is uh, to uh, delve a little deeper in this uh, in this introduction in a way to free movement, and I think I'd like to start doing that by having a look at some numbers just to provide a little bit the sense of the dimension of the phenomenon. I know um, that many of you will be familiar with it, but I think it's always a useful. Um, a useful reminder of, of these dimensions. So when we talk about um, east-west migration or, or uh, EU mobility post-enlargement in particular, um, for instance, we can look at, at individual countries. If we look at uh, Poland, um, it's very interesting to see how the stock of Polish citizens abroad uh, had a very steep increase from about 800,000 individuals in 2002 to over 2 million, actually 2.3 million, just five years later in 2007, and of course um, after EU enlargement in 2004. Um, and, and this accounted for about 7% of the national population, so we're, we're talking big numbers here. Um, other countries, such as Bulgaria or some of the Baltic states, uh, lost even higher shares of their population, between 16 and 26%. Uh, so this is rather massive. And uh, Megan, you, you mentioned right the medium term, the long term. Um, actually, I found very interesting. There was a, a study recently conducted by the Joint Research Center of the European Commission and the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis on demographic scenarios for the European Union. Um, and and it, uh, it said that if, if movements of, of recent years continue following the same patterns, for instance, the population of Romania would decrease by one-third uh, by the year 2060. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite massive and urgent. And also in, in political discussions, this has come up. Um, I mean, it's, it's been a topic, obviously, for, for, for over a decade, but um, it's still very uh, burning, um, as you can tell by, for instance, the Romania's finance minister, um, you know, raising the issue of introducing uh, five-year permits to, to, to curtail, in a way, uh, intra-EU mobility, almost a bit as a provocation. But, of course, this, this gives a sense of how certain countries uh, do see a problem of, of imbalances arising from this. So um, if we think about the factors that drive this or have driven this, uh, this um, immigration movement, well, of course, uh, wage differentials have played a major role and also employment differentials. Um, it has provided a, 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 vow, a valve in a way uh, for, for, yeah, overcrowded or saturated labor markets in, in periods of, uh, of high unemployment. Um, empirical research has also shown the importance of uh, other factors such as the quality of, of services and institutions and, of course, living standards in the country as, as being uh, very important uh, drivers. Um, 
let's have a closer look maybe at the people who leave. Um, as we as we all know, I think um, it's rather skewed towards the, the young. So uh, people who migrate east-west are often relatively young. And if we uh, look at the skills, um, it's actually quite interesting because, of course, we, we talk very often about, about brain drain, particularly in connection to east-west uh, mobility. Um, however, um, if we, let's say, if we take brain drain, the concept of brain drain in a narrow sense, uh, mainly applying to highly skilled, um, east-west um, intra-EU mobility is actually quite peculiar in that um, it cuts across uh, different uh, levels of skills. Which, which is not the same, for instance, in other um, for other patterns of, of intra-EU mobility, which um, are more concentrated among, let's say, the, the highly skilled group. Here you see the highly skilled, but also medium skilled, and also low, lower level uh, or lower skilled professions playing a, a very important role. And um, of course, this is also quite uh, quite ingrained in our perceptions of mobility uh, in our media discourses, for instance. Eastern European workers um, working on construction sites or in agriculture or in other sectors, right? Um, so some experts, yeah, would be would be rather cautious in applying the term brain drain for east-west movements, uh, but you do have it as as Megan you already mentioned it. You do have it in the cases of certain professions, and I think one that has really stood out um, most is is healthcare. Um, Really uh, can lead to important shortages in, in countries such as such as Romania, um, also Slovakia um, in the care sector, as uh, as we will hear from Bernard. Um, Megan, you mentioned some of the benefits that that come with mobility, so I, I will not go over them again. If we look a bit deeper into the costs, which uh, of course we're also most interested in. Um, for, for the sake of this conversation. Well, obviously, economic costs in terms of uh, slower economic growth, uh, skill gaps you know, arising from uh, immigration of, of young professionals, of, of graduates. Um, and this, of course, also leads to you know, a loss of uh, big investments into the education of these people. So countries of origin would, of course, um, invest a lot of public, uh, public resources into keeping uh, keeping their or yeah, keeping their education systems, their higher education systems, um, to a high level, and then uh, many would 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 leave. So uh, in a way, they cannot cash in the returns of these investments. Um, but of course, there are societal um, implications and costs as well. Uh, first and foremost, I would say demographic aging um, and the population, as uh, um, I think became quite clear in. The figure I, I mentioned earlier, um, Romania, the, the, the forecast for for 2060, and this um, has also implication for public budgets because with the older populations come also lower fiscal revenues uh, due to the yeah, old age dependency ratio and uh, um, of course a, a shorter, like a, a smaller percentage of the population actually um, actively contributing in terms of taxes for the, the support and the well-being of a population that is not in work anymore. And then community costs, and I'm sure uh, we will hear that more also in the next intervention in terms of uh, you know, family separation, for instance, and other uh, impacts on communities. 
So if these are the challenges, then what are uh, the responses? And I will just provide uh, a very simplified picture. I think uh, simplifying, and, and we've been reflecting also based on, on the research that was conducted by our partners and by ourselves within this project, I think uh, they can be grouped into three sets mainly of uh, possible policy responses. Obviously, one is at the, at the national level. Um, and here, um, there is a variety of, of potential policy responses. Well, one is, let's say, targeted measures to encourage uh, returns, so returns of people who have already emigrated, who have already left the country. Um, these can be measures, for instance, that include uh, counseling. They can include um, also certain financial incentives, um, entrepreneurship grants in some cases. Uh, the most recent examples are, for instance, Romania setting up a diaspora startup program, and Slovakia um, is also currently working on, on a program to, to re-attract uh, uh, some of its nationals, particularly trying to, in a way, um, ride the wave of, of Brexit and, and maybe re-attracting some, some people from, from that region of Europe. Um, however, these incentives are sometimes a bit uh, limited in time or have a, a bit of a one-off character, particularly in the, in the case of uh, you know, grants that you get once. And so, uh, of course, their impact and also their, their attractiveness might, might be limited. Um, what may be more effective are wider investments that are not just aimed at returns, but also at, uh, at re retention. Um, and, and, and at improving, let's say, the, the conditions in the country uh, for everyone so that immigration slows down. Um, and these um, might, uh, might entail uh, making certain professions more attractive, uh, for instance, with income top-ups, but also with uh, you know, rethinking career pathways. Or they, uh, they can also be broader and, and involve uh, you know, more welfare spending, um, and an improvement of services. But of course, um, these require uh, greater spending and, and therefore um, they have as a, as a precondition um, a healthy economy. Uh, they need a healthy economy in the first place um, and, and uh, sufficient resources and therefore might be, might be tough to implement for, for certain countries that are already under strain. Um, what is still used relatively little, I would say, particularly in the framework of East-West um, mobility, are policies for diaspora engagement at the national level, particularly, let's say, very concrete policies for, for diaspora engagement, for instance, to encourage emigrants to, uh, to channel their remittances into productive investment rather than uh, you know, just sending them to, to, their, to their families and so that they end up in, in, in consumption. Um, I will move up to, to, one, to another level, which is the bilateral one, so let's say country-to-country um, -country level within the European Union. Um, here it's, uh, it's very interesting because the discussion around uh, skills circulation and circular migration or mobility um, has gained more attention recently in EU circles also. The European Commission uh, published, recently published a study on this. Um, and basically, this involves uh, or would involve strategic cooperation between member states to to create um, corridors, yeah, mobility mobility corridors from from one member state to another um, for certain professions, um, following, of course, demand and supply, 
Um, and this could be used strategically, particularly if you uh, consider the fact that some countries are experiencing increasing uh, skill gaps. Um, there are some initiatives, uh, particularly in the healthcare sector, that already exist um, from country to country within the European Union. Um, however, evaluation is um, limited um, for the moment, um, and also their scale tends to be uh, quite small. Um, yeah, and, and these initiatives could, for instance, involve sharing also some of the costs to, to, to build, to train human capital so that uh, countries on both ends, both the sending and the receiving end, uh, could have uh, durable benefits. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, and of course, the loss of investment into uh, education systems would also be, uh, would be milder that I mentioned earlier. And then finally, um, interventions at uh, EU level, um, how to basically uh, make um, living conditions across the, across the European Union more, more equal, um, so that uh, these movements or the, the incentives for these movements in a way are, are a little bit um, uh, lower, or let's say the in incentives to stay in sending countries are higher. Um, of course, um, the main tool for this are cohesion funds, which uh, at the moment, the cohesion fund, which at the moment makes up about one third of the EU budget, so it's it's uh, pretty massive and it's currently being renegotiated um, within the, the negotiations for the, you know the, the new uh, multi-annual uh, financial framework of the union. Um, investments of the of the past uh, years have helped, um, let's say, new relatively new countries, uh, EU member states, to catch up, especially in terms of uh, economic convergence. Um, however, as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, it's also these quality of life indicators that play an important role. So social conditions, uh, social services, and also um, softer aspects, perhaps, you know, the, the openness of, of the, um, of the, of the, let's say, the, the, the climate of, society of the country. Um, moreover, if we look at a bit deeper um, in, into this picture of economic convergence, we see that uh, especially in these um, Eastern European member states, sometimes there are uh, significant differences between regions that, uh, you know, looking only at the national patterns of convergence might hide. So there are maybe impoverished regions and therefore um, immigration flows do not necessarily stop. So um, potentially, um, you know, looking for, looking ahead, I think um, paying greater attention to regions in terms of cohesion and convergence, and also paying greater attention to, to uh, social criteria, um, potentially good governance more at large. Um, at the same time, as is becoming evident at the moment in these negotiations for um, the new uh, funds uh, of the European Union uh, and the new budget, um, it is very hard to attach more conditionalities to cohesion funding, um, especially when it comes to governance, because, of course, that's a pretty broad uh, conditionality criterion, and it may be perceived um, potentially as, as patronizing and, and risks, uh, in some cases, stirring up um, anti-EU sentiment. In, some of these countries. So I think I'll just 
put it there for now and uh, yeah, looking forward to the discussion later on. Thank you so much, Liam, um, for giving this great overview, I mean, including starting by really hammering home the dramatic population impacts and the political, and the political salience of the topic, which um, um, I had underestimated. And also, this was also a really great overview of the kinds of policy responses that can work from the very small to the kind of big picture and ideal and the role of different levels of government. Um, I'm very pleased now to turn to Bernard Petchening. He is the Senior Research Officer for the International Center for Migration Policy Development, ICMPD. He has more than 30 years' experience uh, in the migration topic, ranging from integration to naturalization and citizenship. And he's going to talk a little bit about some of the nuances of East-West mobility um, and also about the sort of sub-national impacts. Over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for being able to join your webinar. Um, I will uh, now come in uh, at actually with some points which have been already mentioned, uh, and uh, I will refer to this uh, project we implemented uh, here in ICMPD. We implemented uh, some small-scale studies, one study on care mobility from the new to the old uh, member states, particularly with regard to a case study, Romania, Slovakia, Austria, and Little Italy, and on mobility, cross-border mobility in border regions uh, between uh, Slovakia, Hungary, and Austria. And what we saw, and this has already been mentioned, when we are talking about mobility, um, we are referring to a legal concept, uh, freedom of movement. Uh, this freedom of movement concept, of course, is the legal base for everything which is happening here. Uh, but in practice, uh, the practices uh, of mobilities uh, shows the huge difference with regard to the type of mobility, but also with regard to effects on sending and, and, and receiving regions. So uh, it's a multi multitude of mobilities we are seeing here, and uh, not a single uh, form of uh, mobility. Uh, I would like now to turn a little bit to the uh, to the first care mobility question. We have started. Uh, we have looked at care mobility, a specific type of care mobility. Uh, Two, uh, which is found in Austria and Italy and Germany mainly, which is in-house care. In-house care for elderly people who are uh, not that sick that they need to stay in a hospital, uh, but need some help. And uh, this is organized now in, within the framework of freedom of services. And it's organized in a way that uh, usually uh, mainly women, more or less 100% women, uh, are coming for either two weeks, live together with, with the client, help him or her to live his or her life, then return home and are replaced by another person, or it may be them a, a one-month, one-month uh, uh, circle. And uh, in our case, we had a study of uh, Slovakia and Romanian uh, caregivers uh, doing this in Austria. We are talking about some 65,000 people here uh, who are doing uh, these services. And these services, this is important, organized within the freedom of movement concept, allowing freedom of services. Third country nationals wouldn't be able to do this because they only can enter with a labor permit. And uh, the legislation uh, in Austria gave a specific, uh, say, uh, put, uh, put, uh, possibility, gave a specific uh, room for maneuver by identifying this type of work as not being covered 
by the labor code. So it's something which the ILO calls dependent self-employment, some kind of legal bogus self-employment, which has very different effects uh, with regard to the countries of origin and also on the people. Uh, so what we see is that in uh, from Slovakia, uh, where some 40% of these caregivers are coming, uh, it has been mainly uh, trained nurses who were actually not leaving directly from the region uh, to Austria in the beginning, but in the beginning uh, came from impoverished regions in eastern Slovakia more to the center and left their institutions, mainly nursing homes or, or hospitals, uh, because of, on the one hand, uh, the low payment and the low salaries, so it's an economic factor, but uh, the interviews also showed that many of them left because of the low quality of management, so that they wanted uh, to work somewhere where they got some more esteem for their work. Uh, they are coming on this two-weekly uh, two uh, pattern uh, to Austria, some uh, 35,000 people annually. Uh, the difference is completely different to Romania, where it's mainly young uh, women, uh, mainly untrained women, not the nurses are going uh, elsewhere, the nurses are going to Western uh, European hospitals, and these get some training uh, which are, is not regulated, there's a multitude of providers of training, there are also rumors that some training certificates can simply be bought, and uh, move for one month into these care arrangements, where they live together with the client, which of course makes them a lot more vulnerable than in any other normal uh, work environment. And uh, we have uh, asked uh, in both countries, we did our interviews uh, on, the, on the perceptions of this type of care. So it was very different in Slovakia. Uh, this was seen, this, this actually was seen as a kind of signal for the need of a reform of the Slovak uh, health system uh, with regard to training, with regard to quality. So there was, was really the issue uh, of a kind of a brain drain, uh, but also an issue where uh, there was an argument that this kind of brain drain had uh, kind of changed also the attitude of the of the of the uh, government that there's a need to invest more into this into this part of care and uh, in, into training etc and there have been investments been done uh, in uh, Romania we also have the situation that most of these uh, women do not come from uh, the central regions or from, or from the capital but from impoverished regions and here the argument uh, if most local authorities didn't focus on the on the fact that they uh, were working and uh, earning money and this was simple but here we have the situation of a negative effect on families uh, because in many of these, uh, in many families also uh, the second partner is uh, working abroad, so children are being raised uh, by grandparents or, or relatives with negative in in impacts on, on, on their uh, school and on, on their psychological development and, and their school attendance. Uh, so local authorities have been rather critical uh, on, on that, uh, demanding much more support in schools, uh, also with regard to uh, support of children who, the, whose parents are off. Secondly, uh, also here uh, we saw an argument that uh, it's a problem related to depopulation and uh, because those young women who are now being trained and working in this type of, of, of care are actually those who would be needed to be trained as nurses. So we do have here some kind of uh, imbalanced uh, uh, relationship where, say, the, the, the positive side or, or the gains from mobility are reaped mainly uh, by the receiving country, not so, not so much uh, by the sending countries. 
this is one part uh, to, to show. So here we have a very uh, different impacts, uh, different impacts with regard to who is the, who is gaining from it, uh, what what are, what effects are on the region, and these effects are very different uh, with regard to these small uh, two small examples. Uh, whereas in Slovakia, it's really a, a care drain from qualified workers. It's more the unqualified uh, uh, young women from Romania, but who nevertheless. Uh, it nevertheless carries a lot of, of, of issues where there is policy, uh, where the policy needs, particularly with regard to training, particularly with regard to uh, upscaling the skills uh, and uh, better protecting uh, their, them when they are working abroad. Uh, we also had quite a different uh, study on um, commuting and uh, commuting in the cross-border region between Hungary and Austria and Slovakia and Austria. And also here we could see that the local uh, conditions are, are the most relevant. Uh, we have very different uh, settings uh, between Slovakia, where there's a specific situation with Vienna and Bratislava uh, being some 70 kilometers apart, so it's a twin city region with, uh, with a lot of uh, commuting uh, possibilities, uh, very close, uh, close uh, to each other. Uh, and the region to the Burgenland where there is no such powerhouse like Bratislava. And in Bratislava, we could see that there's an, 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 a big element in all these debates, which is the regional disparities. Bratislava is now, meanwhile, uh, in all statistics in Europe, one of the richest city regions. It's richer than the city region of Vienna. It's, it has an average uh, GDP of 186% of the European Union uh, uh, average. Uh, but uh, Eastern Slovakia is at 40%. So what we see, have seen here that uh, this uh, huge uh, power, economic powerhouse, which is based on automotive industries, it's the seventh largest automotive cluster in Europe with some more than a million cars being manufactured there, Volkswagen, uh, PSA, uh, Kia, uh, Jaguar, all are producing there. Uh, this has changed the direction of commuting. Uh, while in the 2000s, 1990s, 2000s, a lot of commuting started uh, from Slovakia to Austria, um, some two-thirds in diverse technical jobs, technical professions, uh, and uh, one-third in more the service sector. Uh, these people still co still continue to commute, but the younger generation is not that interested in commuting because uh, Bratislava has more or less no unemployment, and Bratislava, the companies are now even trying to recruit in Austria and in the Czech Republic, particularly trained workers, uh, technicians, uh, or, or managers, and are paying, um, to some extent, nearly comparable wages. So here, the regional situation has actually changed it, and there's a growing number of, of Austrians uh, interested in working in, in Bratislava and managerial or technical uh, professions. Quite different in, in Hungary, where there is no such powerhouse near the border, and where there is a lot of uh, commuting being done from uh, into the tourism sector, which has been developed uh, in Austria uh, by means of European Union funding. And the Austrians will tell you, everyone will tell you, okay, without Hungarians, uh, the sector could close down. Uh, and uh, on the other side of the border, we, you, but you also could, could see quite different things, the negative effects uh, of not only brain drain, but simply a drain of labor force. So uh, we had several several interviews in this region where local politicians, local actors are telling us, well, they know that companies had to close down uh, because uh, they couldn't uh, compete with the, with the salaries level. The salary difference is one to three to one to four. Uh, and... Uh, there, is, there are no services anymore. 
so this is a very mixed picture. On the other hand, uh, there is uh, the situation that uh, we experience uh, not not only brain drain but dequalification. Uh, so what we've been told and also seen in the in the data, some 40% of the commuters to Austria hold a university degree, uh, but the uh, majority of them is not uh, working in uh, jobs where a degree is demanded. So we we, we know from from the interviews that there is training, for example, from from people holding a master's degree uh, for, for as a waiter because uh, the income is is higher than as a master as an academic in Hungary. So there are locally there are uh, also negative Im impacts uh, on the sending country. Uh, this had to this has to do with uh, this was al already hi highlighted with the huge uh, the disparities regional disparities we will find in these countries uh, where. As I told you, with Bratislava, you have a city with 186% of the GDP average and regions with 40%. Uh, in, in Hungary, we were told that in eastern Hungary, now people are commuting uh, weekly uh, to workers' homes near the Austrian border and commute from there uh, daily to Austria uh, because simply there are no jobs in, in, in eastern Hungary. So uh, this picture uh, which turns up is that we have to have a very close look at the regional differences, at the regional disparities. And uh, we have to be aware that uh, while in general uh, these types of mobility are regarded and perceived as beneficial, uh, by, by, by most there are there might be negative impacts. And the negative impacts uh, might on the one hand concern more the uh, say family setting in the case when uh, when young parents uh, are, are commuting or leaving for, for, for longer time, uh, but might also be economically on the regions bordering um, where you have very severe uh, income differentials on both sides of the border. And the income differentials are, are between one, one to three, one to four, and this is uh, really imagine uh, uh, this is quite quite a trigger for uh, for, for migration. Um, before ending now, just one small comment. Um, what we found very interesting, and we didn't expect actually, um, because usually as a migration researcher, you think that freedom of movement uh, abolishes migration control. Uh, states also can control commuting. They do it by investment into traffic infrastructure. We have been told by several partners that traffic infrastructure is the main uh, the main steering wheel for politicians uh, to govern uh, commuting and mobility. And you could see it in the case of Austria to Slovakia that uh, the highway to Bratislava was finished in 1994 in Bratislava, but only in 2007 in Austria. And the reason was uh, that uh, Austria at this time didn't want so much commuters uh, from Bratislava coming to the Austrian labor market and therefore postponed uh, the building. And also the trains are now just now being uh, improved uh, with a target of a half an hour traveling time between the two cities in 2023. Um, so coming to an end, I think it is important to see that we have a huge diversity of mobilities uh, which are developing uh, as practice in the framework of freedom of movement, but where this freedom of movement will not help much to explain the type of mobility we are seeing and the effects we are seeing. This is more governed uh, by regional specificities, uh, by specific conditions uh, of employment offered, and uh, by specific regional conditions with regard uh, to economic disparities or, 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 or simply uh, clusters of 
job offers by by companies uh, which have been uh, growing in a certain uh, in a certain sector. Well, thank you so much, Bernard, for that extremely rich picture. I love that phrase that you started with, multitude of mobilities, and you really gave a, a sort of sense of the different features and enabling factors of different forms of particularly short-term seasonal commuting movements and how they work in different sectors. So thank you. I'm very pleased now to turn to Martin. He's uh, going to give us a government perspective. Uh, he is the chief expert for labor migration in the Labor Migration Policy Unit in the Ministry of Family, Labor and Social Policy in Poland. Uh, Martin, could you talk a little bit about the challenges of EU mobility um, for Poland and some of the policy responses that you've developed? Uh, yes, thank you, I will try. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I would like, can you see me? Y yes, thank you, we can. Uh, okay. Would you again. mind just starting again? I think you had muted yourself. Okay. Uh, good afternoon. I, I would like to thank uh, MPI uh, for enabling me to say a few words about the challenges of the free movement uh, from the perspective of uh, standing countries, especially Poland and other uh, Eastern countries. Uh, first of all, uh, certainly Poland has benefited greatly from free movement. Uh, it is estimated that more than 2 million Polish, uh, Polish citizens, or about 5% uh, of population, are now working and living uh, in the EU. Uh, the unemployment rate of around 20% in 2004 is uh, currently around uh, 3% and is one of the lowest in the EU. The transfers from abroad have helped uh, reduce uh, poverty in some regions. A large number of people have gained knowledge, self-confidence, language skills, and foreign contacts that they can successfully use or can use in the future in Poland. Uh, but however, most experts agree that uh, while the benefits are concentrated over the short term, uh, constant uh, challenges prevail in the long term. We are uh, aware that uh, immigration contributes to deepening demographic problems, uh, shrinking of working age population, and increasing the fear of people at retirement age. It is well known uh, fact that uh, Poland will belong to the fastest aging uh, societies in, in the EU. Um, it is also worth to notice that uh, post access immigration has certainly contributed to the increase in the influx uh, of migrants uh, to Poland, primarily from Ukraine. It is uh, estimated now that uh, around uh, 1 million foreigners can work uh, in, in Poland uh, on average uh, year by year. Of course, emigration uh, is not uh, a matter of, of, uh, of the shortage of concrete number of employees, but also the loss of uh, human capital. Polish migrants, just like in most, uh, most uh, other Eastern countries, more often are younger, more active, with higher education level, comparing to uh, styles. Uh, moreover, they often work below the qualification, which might depreciate the human capital. Some studies indicate also that 
returnees uh, are more likely to become unemployed, which contributes to the decision to leave the country again. And this all taken together may pose a serious threat to increased product uh, to increase productivity, which will be a, a main condition for uh, further growth, especially in the time of uh, fall industrial uh, revolution and uh, further convergence with all the EU countries. A significant problem uh, related to migration may be also decreasing the tax base. Uh, lower tax uh, revenues will limit the scope for ambitious social policies, uh, for example, creating places uh, to care for children or elderly people. Uh, this is particularly important because standards of living and quality of public services is becoming an increasingly important factor in the migration decision, uh, especially when we see convergence in, in uh, when we see that the convergence is increasing. Uh, regional policy will also be a serious uh, challenge. While we observe a double increase in convergence between the countries of Eastern and Western Europe, the picture is uh, much less positive when we go down to the level of region. This is mainly because uh, national level indicators are overstated by strong centers such as country capitals like Warsaw, for example. Uh, migration may so migration may have additional adverse effect on regional development due to the fact that migrants are overrepresented in less developed regions, uh, while uh, they return, they tend to uh, go rather to the more developed uh, regions than to the region of uh, origin. Um, overlapping uh, tax issue with uh, regional development can also be interesting to Poland. One of the regions most affected by mass migration, the Opole Voivodsi, with a high level of remittances, suffers from deficits in local uh, government budgets. It, it, it is uh, because VAT taxes, uh, partly from remittances-led consumption, uh, are sent to the central budget, while revenues from income taxes are significantly lowered compared to other regions, due to the fact that many of locals work abroad. Uh, this creates a, a kind of paradox, where despite the relatively wealthy inhabitants, uh, local authorities does not have the resources to provide public services on decent level, for example, in the healthcare, education, um, public investment, and, and so on. All the uh, um, challenges I mentioned were noticed in Poland relatively quickly. Already in 2007, 2008, uh, just uh, three or four years after accession, a large debate took place in Poland. And as a result, the program returns uh, was adopted. Some actions uh, were taken, for example, create special portal for returnees, international informational campaign, and uh, changes in law in order to avoid double uh, taxation. Uh, the effects were uh, unfortunately not impressive, especially in short term. For I think for uh, various reasons. The approaching crisis, the approaching world financial crisis was not conducive 
to making two B promises on government side and and also the reasons why people decided to to emigrate uh, of course didn't uh, not see uh, large wage gap and still high unemployment rate in Poland at this uh, at this moment uh, well um, I think that that uh, the lessons that subsequent Polish governments learned from this experience from that policy was that we need uh, um, other policy that leads us to catch up uh, EU countries in terms of socio-economic development than to create I don't know special incentives to to attract people. So a number of instruments have been introduced to support families raising children and to facilitate the joining of professional and family roles, parental leave, the 500 plus program, the total program financing the development of care for children. Actions were also taken to strengthen the position of employees, including better regulation of atypical employment contracts, including the introduction of uh, minimum uh, hourly wage for atypical contracts. Uh, this year, 2019, uh, zero income tax rate has also been introduced for employees under um, 26. Uh, although uh, they all that introduced uh, solutions were rather general nature, they took uh, into account the, the migration aspect. So I, it is because I, it, it is why I mentioned it. Um, of course, uh, the results are not spectacular, at, at least at this moment. Uh, nevertheless, we, we, we we observe a significant reduced scale of departures uh, and, and to lesser extent that the, some, uh, some retro migration. According to recent Central, uh, Central Statistics Office estimate, at the end of 2018, the number of Poles staying temporarily in the other EU countries decreased first time in 10 years uh, by approximately uh, nine, uh, 90,000 uh, and 4% uh, and is uh, currently slightly above uh, 2 million. Um, particularly strong decline causes uh, returns from the UK uh, it's about 10%, which on the one hand should be associated with Brexit, but also with the phenomena such as the increasing salaries in Poland, the weaker pound, uh, or better assessment of social policy in Poland by Polish migrants. Uh, finally, at the end, I would like to say that uh, so far, actions aimed at dealing with problems related to out, uh, outflow of employees have been undertaken almost exclusively at the national level, like the actions uh, as I mentioned in Poland. Uh, whereas 
there is a significant impact of, uh, of uh, functioning of single market and cohesive EU. Uh, so today we are still dealing uh, rather with one way flow from east to west or from south to north instead of more balanced movement. Uh, I think it, it might need to the consolidation of inequalities and drainage of some regions of human capital resources, for example. Uh, seems uh, that in order to fully address these uh, challenges, we need to start discussion at EU level and to recognize the, the, the problem of long-term consequences for sending countries should be also addressed uh, at this level, not, not only on the national or regional level. Thank you, Martin. Do you think I could cut you off there? I'm so sorry. We all had so much to say today that I just want to leave enough time for a couple of questions, if that's okay. But thank you so much for bringing up this very uh, interesting overview of all the complex challenges and the kind of comprehensive whole of government response that you really need to um, address these different issues from the vital issue of return to the tax base to regional policy. And um, without further ado, I just want to open the floor for Q&A. Um, apologies, audience, that we are running a little short of time, but please be speedy. Send your questions to events at migrationpolicy.org or you can put them in the, in the chat box. And we've actually um, already had a, a question come in, which is about public opinion, which I want to uh, direct to Liam uh, in the first instance. Um, Liam, you know, migration is such a salient topic in Western Europe and often, you know, the top thing that people are concerned about. Uh, are attitudes different in Eastern Europe and how do people feel about emigration versus immigration? Do they distinguish between free movement and other forms of migration? What's, what's the picture there? Yeah, thanks. Uh, very interesting question. So I, I keep it short, so we, we can we can take some others. Um, yeah, well, we had some very interesting research within the Reminder Consortium. The partners were that conducted research on perceptions and, and media discourses. Where University of Vienna, University of Oxford, and the European Journalism Center, in particular. And um, yeah, actually, what's what's interesting is that in, in countries of large immigration, indeed free movement um, is quite a, quite a topical, quite a, quite a salient issue in, uh, in media reporting, which is not the case in all, uh, in all other EU countries. Uh, it's, it's the case in the UK, but in many other countries, intra-EU mobility is kind of like sidelined and um, definitely as compared to, uh, let's say, migration uh, writ large. Um, and and it, so it's it's quite topical there, and it's also quite often negatively framed. So you can you can see these effects of immigration in in how people perceive the whole free movement idea, and also to some extent the the, the wider European project. So I think probably finding solutions for these challenges is also important from from that point of view to to regain the trust of uh, people in the, the European project. Um, as a as a whole and and regional disparities of course um do not necessarily help because they create a sense of of inequality also within the country that can um easily let's say turn into into discontent and and and, and uh, yeah and and have a political manifestation I'll, I'll stop it there 
Thank you, Liam. And, and then I have a question uh, for Bernhardt, I think, which is um, on the difference between migration and mobility. I mean, the, the, the EU institutions often refer to mobility, it's EU mobility, and they kind of um, refuse to refer to uh, mobile EU workers as, as, as migrants, even if sometimes they're perceived as that. Would you, did you find with your interviews that people describe themselves as migrants, or what's the kind of relationship between migration and mobility um, that you found in your work? Um, well, uh, maybe two points. Uh, at first, uh, we were f uh, focusing a lot on people who were kind of long-time commuters or commuters, so they didn't see themselves as migrants, uh, but they saw themselves uh, as um, something between, I would say. So uh, one one interview one interview said, well, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a migrant, but I'm also not living at home. So, so it's a it's a very specific uh, understanding uh, they have. Uh, and one other told told me, I said, well, you know, uh, we are commuting, uh, so this means uh, we are we are not we don't want to migrate. So this is the this is the perception. So commuting is a very specific element in it. But what all of them uh, really said that well, they they don't get uh, a lot of attention by the public here in Austria and a lot of support. And this is also to be seen in all the integration measures, uh, which have been only recently opened for, for European Union nationals. So we do most of the integration measures which are, which are implemented in member states and funded by the EU uh, reach out to third country nationals. And um, this is, has been also limited actually to them for, for a long time. And uh, what we saw, for example, in, 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 in uh, Burgenland, there are, of course, uh, companies which are trying to exploit uh, Hungarian commuters by not paying certain benefits or whatever because they, they consider them not being knowledgeable about, about the situation here. So the Chamber of Labour has now started Hungarian uh, advice, advice, advice giving in Hungarian and is publishing a, a, an information booklet in Hungarian. But these are, these are punctual things. So there's much more need. Uh, this might be also a task for the newly established labor agency in Bratislava. There's much uh, more need to also inform um, and support uh, workers commuting or, or migrating from, from east to west about their rights because this is still not, 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 not always seen. And on the, on the other hand, what has been also mentioned by the, by the Polish colleague, um, I think there is also a, a need to uh, rethink the relationship between um, regional disparities and mobility. Because what, what has been an, an, a kind of um, going through uh, an, an examination or, or a result which, which goes through all our, all our studies is that we got the impression that it's mainly the new, the old European member states who are really estates are gaining from mobility. Yes, the mobile, mobile, mobile uh, union citizens from new member states, they personally gain from the mobility. This is clear. The family gains from the mobility because of remittances and, and, and higher incomes. But we do not see that uh, the region where they're coming from, or the state where they're coming from, the locality where they're coming from, is really gaining from it. So there, there, there is a need of some kind of intervention, uh, bringing the, the, the sending country much more to the fore in this type of mobility. Thank you very much. I would much. leave it like that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and I just want to end with a final question that's come in. It was directed to Liam, so perhaps we can start with Liam, but I'd love to hear your, your other thoughts as well. Um, 
this is about the kind of labor market restructuring that we're seeing and, and the increased risk that migrants are working in precarious or unskilled jobs and are not uh, able to use the, the, the skills that, that they've developed um, or the, the, the jobs that they're trained for, do the jobs that they're trained for. Um, Liam, how can we make brain circulation work better? We've talked a little bit about the issue of returning migrants who are not able to use the skills they've gained abroad, but how can we maximize brain circulation? And that's the question I'd like to pose to all three of you, starting with Liam. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, yeah, um, well, I think, I think one of the challenges might be that um, I think circular patterns of migration tend to be mostly or like let's say that the people who, who tend to be more likely to to move in, in these patterns at the moment are, are mostly like in the, in the lower uh, let's say uh, parts and the lower uh, levels of the skill spectrum uh, people moving you know for for temporary or seasonal employment so i think if one 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 challenge might really be to open it up also to to other skill levels and then to think concretely about what what incentives can you can you set um, you know between countries so that both sides profit and of course it's also the the person circulating profits and uh, yeah I think that that would be the challenge in terms of uh, joint training programs could be an idea of course improving uh, transfer of qualifications one way but also the way back and uh, yeah I'll just leave it there thank you. Uh, Martin, did you have anything that you'd like to add on this topic? Uh, maybe I, I, I would like to, to, to propose uh, some um, some ideas to, to, to create a, a new solutions that, that uh, could be applied at uh, EU level. Uh, for example, um, I think uh, about uh, creating a special investment fund that would be partly financed by migrants remittances which would deal with large investment in regions particularly affected by immigration just to address these regional issues in immigration. I think maybe we also can think about uh, taking advantage of the positive experience uh, associated with the Erasmus program uh, to consider creating similar instruments, uh, but not for only for students, but also for I don't know for, for uh, vocational school students or those are rather working and wanting to do an internship, uh, not uh, not necessarily highly skilled work, but but also another uh, kind of worker. Uh, so. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we're a bit short on time. In fact, we've already gone over. Uh, Bernard, did you have uh, any um, burning additional comments to add on this brain circulation question? Um, but, well, also what I also would say, it's 
it's an important thing to think about education and also some formal education which which uh, gratifies the experience uh, abroad. So what we've been told in this care issues, yes, it might be, make sense to have some more care training uh, done during the job, which then also might be used uh, in the country of origin. Uh, but in, fa in fact, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. Uh, it's a lot about economy. So what we see uh, return in Bratislava, where there is this uh, economic uh, boom and where there is uh, this, this large car manufacturing industry, we see that people who have been commuting are going back. But this has to do with the fact that uh, the income differences uh, are changing. They are not very high anymore in the automotive sector. And so people prefer to live uh, where they're coming from and, and, and don't uh, start to commute. Um, so it will be, in effect, very much also an economic question of uh, the new member states catching up with regard to income levels. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, all of you, for these very insightful comments. I feel like we could have had another hour on this topic. Um, uh, apologies, audience, if any of you asked questions that we didn't get to. We will follow up with you afterwards. Um, you can also find the audio from today's webinar at migrationpolicy.org forward slash events. Please also look at uh, some of our related work while you're there. And the Reminder Project that um, we've referred to a number of times is reminder-project.eu, and that's an EU-funded project full of tons of innovative new research on free movement. Um, finally, any reporters on the call who need more, more information, please call Michelle, uh, plus 44-20-8123-6265, or if you're in the US, 202-266-1910. Thank you so much, everyone, participants and uh, speakers. Thank you.